0: Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part One The Four Quartets were written by a person for whom the doctrines and the creedal assertions of the Christian faith had become experiences, and that had not been uh, an easy development for T.S. Eliot. Uh, we followed his earlier poetry and we know uh, how what a, what a torturous path it was for him uh, to uh, finally discover in a personal, meaningful way the uh, Christian experience. Let me quote to you something that Alfred North Whitehead said. Religious truth must be developed from knowledge acquired when our ordinary senses and intellectual operations are at their highest pitch of discipline. To move one step from this position towards the dark recesses of abnormal psychology is to surrender finally any hope of a solid foundation for religious doctrine. So... Religious truth, uh, acquired when our ordinary senses and intellectual operations are at their highest pitch of discipline. Well, there are a number of, uh, words and phrases in that sentence that are, that are somewhat alien to us moderns, uh, one of them being discipline, and the other being, uh, senses and intellectual operations simultaneously at their highest pitch of discipline. Uh, we don't, we think of things being either at their highest pitch or disciplined. And it's hard for us to imagine that they might be both at the same time. Well, there, are th- these kind of, uh, these kind of quandaries, uh, surround any, uh, any reflection on Eliot's work because it doesn't fit into, uh, the familiar, uh, terrain for us. Uh, we'll come back to these things. I'm, what I'm gonna do is, uh, be a little bit like, uh, Hansel of Hansel and Gretel, who 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 drops the crumbs on the path, and uh, if the birds don't get to them, I'm going to turn around and try to work work our way back uh, through some of these things uh, uh, later on in the morning. Eliot wrote an essay on uh, on Pascal and pa- and was fascinated by the by Pascal's conversion. Pascal was a uh, was a prominent intellectual and mathematician who experienced a conversion in uh, 1654 and after that wrote in an aphoristic way uh, about the Christian experience from inside of it. Upon his death, there was discovered, uh, sewn into the lining of his jacket, a hastily written note dated November 23rd, 1654. And it read in part like this. From half past ten until half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certainty. Certainty. Sensation. Joy. Peace. Peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. To forget the world and everything except God. He is found only by the ways taught in the Gospel. Greatness of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Well, Eliot found Pascal's conversion, he found in Pascal's conversion what seemed parallel to his own and was fascinated by it. Someone who had experienced a conversion and experienced the truth of the Christian mysteries while his, to use Whitehead's terms, while his ordinary senses and intellectual operations were at the highest pitch of their discipline. And who did not have to return to the dark recesses of abnormal psychology in order to find a way to affirm the Christian mystery. Stuart Holroyd uh, comments on uh, the Pascal conversion. He says, The exquisite French stylist is here reduced to being about as coherent as a five-year-old child trying to tell of the wonders it has seen at the zoo. The eminent philosopher and scholar here rejects philosophy and scholarship in favor in favor of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Eliot's essay on Pascal and Pascal's conversion, he speaks of one like Pascal and like himself uh, who has found... Uh, the Christian mysteries to be uh, affirmable. And he says, Such a one finds the world to be so-and-so. He finds its character inexplicable by any non-religious theory. Among the religions he finds Christianity and Catholic Christianity to account most satisfactorily for the world and especially for the moral world within. And thus, by what Newman calls powerful and congruent reasons, he finds himself inexorably committed to the dogma of the Incarnation. To the unbeliever, this method seems disingenuous and perverse. For the unbeliever is, as a rule, not so greatly troubled to explain the world to himself, nor so greatly distressed by its disorder. I'm interested particularly where he says, such a one finds himself inexorably committed to the dogma of the Incarnation. Because really that was, for Eliot, the center of the mystery. The largest frame of reference in which to to refer to the mystery was the dogma of the Incarnation. It it is that the divine uh, breaks into the ordinary. Uh, That the ordinary is the place in which the divine can be discovered. That a god comes into history, comes into a person's life, into phenomenal events and is manifested there. And the, and the, uh, and the central demonstration of that fact is the indwelling of the divine in the life of one Jesus of Nazareth. So Eliot discovered that. And then he found that he was in a world where the communicability of that experience had been virtually eliminated by the abrasions and confusions of modernity. Most people who took time to take a glance at the Christian doctrine were neither scandalized nor uh, nor excited by them. They, they simply looked at them and wondered what all the fuss was about. He has two problems. The, the central experience that he wants to communicate is the incarnation, and the incarnation, uh, is a, is a mystery that doesn't lend itself to easy communication, as mysteries tend not to do. Uh, so that was the first of his problems. I want to deal with them in order here. Uh, so the first was he ha- what he's communicating is the incarnation. Here's what the literary critic R.P. Blackmore says. It is the idiosyncrasy of Christian reality to be ineffable a mystery which we do not so much experience as partake of. So the poetic imagination sometimes compels us to think. It is eminent... Now, this is a sentence that will need to be unpacked in a little while, but it is eminently natural that since reality is a mystery, man's institutions, and especially those institutions which are poems, as they cluster about that mystery must again and again be made to feel the presence of the real into the actual, lest the institutions lose their grasp of ideal aspiration and become mere formulae. Man dwells in the actual between the real and the real. Now, uh, it is that has to do with the incarnation. That, That is to say, to use Blackmore's terms here, uh, the Incarnation is uh, the assurance we have that the actual, the actual, that is to say, the phenomenal world, our experiences, our, our relationships, uh, our, the events that, that we par- participate in, that the actual is a vehicle for the real. It's not synonymous with the real. Uh, but but neither can it be put aside in favor of the real that it is the vehicle for the real coming into our into our life see that's the incarnational mystery the actual is the vehicle for the real i might say here parenthetically that such a vision is Precisely the vision called for if what we're trying to do is, is avoid the sacrificial cult. Now we've done, we're not going to do much of that today, but the sacrificial cult, as you know, is preoccupied with making these distinctions between the pure and the impure. And it regards this larger, the larger category of the impure as simply unworthy of us. And this smaller, increasingly smaller category of the pure as being revelatory. Or at least making, allowing us to uh, have some revelation. Uh, but the incarnation goes contrary to that. The incarnation is that all of the actual is a potential conduit for the manifestation of the real. But it requires more of us, because I can have a priesthood tell me what's pure and what's not pure. Uh, but what is it that I have that is demanded of me? To, to participate in the actual, such that it, that through it, I experience the real. This, this borders on the on the abstract here. I realize. Uh, let me, uh, in, in dropping these breadcrumbs as we go. Uh, here's one from Martin Buber. Uh, what I'm speaking of now is the problem of communicating the mystery of the incarnation. Uh, Blackmore says it's ineffable. And that poetic imagination must think, and that l- unless these poems are to become mere artifacts or formulae, uh, that they will have to be they will have to be incarnational. They will have to be poetic uh data and manifestations of the real. They will have to be actual poems and manifestations of the real themselves. Uh, Buber says something that amounts to the same thing. He says, The religious communication of a content of being takes place in paradox, and artistic communication takes place in the gestalt, from which a communicated content cannot be detached and given independent existence. What he means by that is that the communicated content uh, and the medium of its communication cannot be distinguished. When one speaking of religious matters, uh, a a mere pointing function isn't good enough, because something is lost between the cup and the lip. It has to be uh, the communicated, the thing communicated, and the medium of its communication are indistinguishable. Well, once we recognize that, we're into the we're into the problem of liturgy. Because our liturgy and sacraments, we might say, because uh, the, it is the realm of liturgy and sacraments that 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 deals with this, this with this gap. Eliot's vocation was a literary one, uh, but in some ways he is uh, he is obliged because of what it is he's trying to communicate to behave liturgically which is one of the reasons his poems read so curiously, is because they're not only literary but liturgical events. Let me quote once again from Stuart Holroyd. He says, "...to approach those frontiers of consciousness where thought and emotion are no longer distinguishable from each other and which can only be expressed at all in hints and guesses by means of poetic imagery, has been the constant aim of Eliot in his poetry, and Four Quartets stands an unsurpassed masterpiece in this literary genre. So what he's talking about is the is creating poems in which thought and emotion are no longer distinguishable. Uh, but that simply is one of the features of a liturgical event. So... Uh, Elliot's poems resemble liturgies and we might further say they, they resemble liturgies composed by a sacramental consciousness. Also, these poems are poems that require in the reader some sacramental sensibility, some a uh, willingness to uh, attend liturgically to them. Uh, one can't just sit down and read them the way one has learn to read other things and get anything out of them. So we've gone sort of without realizing it from the first to the second of Eliot's problems. The first problem is he he wants to communicate something about the mystery of the Incarnation, which mystery is ineffable, and uh, the way in which the mystery has typically been communicated as liturgical, which force, obliges him to, to, to write poems that are not only literary but liturgical. That's one of them. And the second one is that the audience... Well, so, uh, these are poems written liturgically by one uh, uh, possessed of a sacramental consciousness. But they're also poems that require sacramental sensibility in order to receive them properly. And sacramental sensibilities are in short supply in the modern world. Now, that's the sum and substance of the second part of the problem. Moderns have been alternately agitated and numbed to the point that they have begun to resemble those experimental rats in the maze who are no longer able to recognize any meaningful connection between their behavior and the periodic electric shocks that they're receiving from the metal grid on which they've been living their lives. And so they stand and stare at one another. <laughs> well, that, to, to, to exaggerate it slightly, is the problem Eliot faced when he looked out at his potential readers. Uh, the second part of his problem. In his essay on Pascal, he says, The majority of mankind is lazy-minded, incurious, absorbed in vanities, and tepid in emotion and is therefore incapable of either much doubt or much faith. And when the ordinary man calls himself a skeptic or an unbeliever, that is ordinarily a simple pose, cloaking a disinclination to think anything out to a conclusion. And that represents a version of sin, perhaps a version of original sin, we might say. Sebastian Moore... uh, you know, I, I've, I've relied on Sebastian Moore's definition of sin as seeing my life through other people's eyes. He he, he nuances sin a lot in lots of places in his writings. One, in one place, he says sin systematically prevents the challenge of spiritual growth from presenting itself. Uh, so Eliot says the problem is that uh, everybody's walking around in this comatose state, and I'm particularly interested in the phrase tepid in emotion. Now, we Westerners were not prepared to have uh, this man in a three-piece suit with uh, English mannerisms that uh, seemed suspiciously like affectation uh, to tell us that we were tepid in emotion. I mean, we were running all over the block, emoting wildly. And here he comes along, tapping his cane, telling us that our emotions are tepid. it was a little hard to take. Uh, Eliot understood the irony of that, I think. In in uh, The Five Finger Exercises, he writes this, How unpleasant to meet Mr. Eliot with his features of clerical cut and his brow so grim and his mouth so prim and his conversation so nicely restricted to what precisely and if and perhaps and but. (laughs) <laughs> so, it was such a one who told the world that it was emotionally tepid. While the rest of us were busy letting our hair down and and uh, running around wildly in our uh, in our emotionality. And he looked on and said it's all tepid. We might compare Eliot's poetry uh or the poetry that Eliot wanted and needed to write to the, to the peacock in, in Flannery O'Connor's The Displaced Person. To pick up a stitch from the, our review of that short story, you know the, the the peacock had flown up to the tree and its magnificent tail was hanging down right in front of Mrs. Shortley as though it were the map of the universe with these amazing suns and constellations. And this is shortly looked right straight through it at a little scene of the sociodrama that's happening down the road and doesn't recognize it at all. At all. And so, likewise, Eliot has a, has a map of the universe to, to drop in front of our eyes, but he knows, he looks at our eyes already and he sees the focal length and he recognizes that there's a problem. I want to focus on the problem of, of tepid emotionality. Modernity has spread lethargy under the banner of liberated emotionality. And once you're onto that, you can spot it. It's so easy to spot. So much of that, of what appears to be, uh, emotional, uh, vitality is really shot through with ennui. And Eliot picked up on that from the very beginning, and throughout his poetry that leads up to the Four Quartets, he points to this problem. We don't we don't have enough feeling to begin to feel the mystery that underlies our lives. For instance, the typist that who comes home at tea time and uh, rendezvous with the clerk from the from the bank or wherever. In the wasteland, and Elliot describes it this way: the time is now propitious, as he guesses. The meal is ended; she is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and ex- excuse me, flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. The Countess earlier in the Wasteland said, In the mountains there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. And from the Wasteland sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet. And finally from the Hollow Men Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion, those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. So that's what Eliot saw when he looked about him. Now, not not many other people saw that. Most other people saw uh, a a a much more kinetic event going on. And, of course, on the surface of things, it was a highly kinetic uh, operation that was happening in the Western culture in the 20th century. Uh, but Eliot was attending to it uh, below the surface, and he found that uh, lack of feeling and emotional uh, bankruptcy. If, in fact, he could he could uh, craft a poem that would uh, be liturgical enough to communicate the mystery of the Incarnation. It was unlikely that his readers would come to it with sufficient sacramental sensibility to receive from it what was there. Again, R.P. Blackmore says this, What is important is that Eliot has been forced, as none of the religious poetry of the other Christian ages has been forced, to make present in his poetry not only Christian dogma and Christian emotion, but also the underlying permanent conditions, stresses, and forces with which that dogma and that emotion are meant to cope. In order to uh, uh, to uh, communicate the truth of the Christian revelation, Eliot had to perform a pl- preliminary task, and that was to communicate the need that we have for it. The beginning of the Gospel of John, the first thing Jesus says when he encounters potential disciples is he says to them, What do you want? So the first words out of his mouth, and John of course is writing the Gospel not about something that has happened, but about something that always happened, Jesus says, well, What do you want? Which is the question we ought to be asking ourselves. What is it that you want? And uh, the, the, the soon-to-be disciples say to Jesus, Where do you live? And he says, Come and see. So there's something of that in Eliot. Eliot is, I think, asking us in, as the quartets uh, begin uh, something about our wanting. Have we lost the capacity to want something other than the trivial? And are we willing to come and see? Eliot learned from Dante, and Dante, of course, was the one who had been tutored in the wanting uh, by Beatrice, in desire by Beatrice. Beatrice had awakened a desire uh, which turned out not to be uh, mimetic and conflictual, uh, but Dante recognized it as leading elsewhere. And in the course of the Divine Comedy, Beatrice, Virgil, first Virgil, and then Beatrice, uh, uh, matriculate Dante in these stages of understanding what this desire is all about. So at, at, uh, at, uh, at uh, the end of the Paradiso, near the end of the Paradiso, uh, excuse me, Beatrice says to Dante, the flame of high desire that makes you yearn for greater knowledge of these things you see pleases me more the more I see it burn. He's achieving desire at the, at the end of the paradiso. Now we thought, and rightly so, because we had, because desire had, 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 had tended to be this mimetic uh, parody of itself, uh, we thought, well, what we've got to do is get rid of desire. But what uh, Beatrice does is that she, is that she, is that she strips it of its mimesis and makes it available for what it's supposed to be available for. At the end of the Purgatorio, Virgil had said in his last, these were Beatrice's last words to Dante in the Paradiso, the last words of Virgil to Dante in the Purgatorio are these, Expect no more of me in word or deed. Here your will is upright, free, and whole. And you would be in error not to heed whatever your own impulse prompts you to. Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you. He says, "You now have, you have purged. This is at the top of the purgatorial mountain. You have purged the desire of its mimesis, if I can use that term. Therefore, it is you. You can have it back now. You can have it back now, and you can trust it because it it will take you Godward." Will take you Godward, which is not. This is an incarnational universe, which is not somewhere else. But it will allow you to experience the actual, such that it, through it, you will experience the real. You can have it back, and and it's available for its deepest purpose. Well, I bring this in because um, because Eliot had learned that from Dante and from life, and. And because I think that's the problem he sees. We're emotionally tepid. We don't know what to do with our emotionality that isn't, that isn't uh, mimetic and impotent and uh, eventually productive either of, uh, of uh, fascinating hostilities or ennui. And so some uh, effort has to be made to reclaim our, our um, emotional... Existence. What we need to put to use Sebastian Moore's words for this: what we need is to discover our desiring in its original molten state before it cools into the distinct objectives. Now that's very much what Eliot does in the first part of *Burnt Norton*. I think he wants to take us back to a place where we might uh, re appropriate uh, the our original desiring in its molten state uh, burnt norton the first of the quartets takes its title from a uh, manor house and garden in england that had been abandoned uh, it had been a, a, a place where people would go to visit the the uh Artifacts of an earlier age. Eliot had gone there in 1934. We don't know much about the uh, events of his visit except that he wandered through the house in the gardens. And it obviously left an impression on him. It's called... Um, well, what it, the reason he brings it up in the poem, I think, is because it harkens back to a time of order and peace. To a former period, where there are these beautiful gardens and a house and home that seems to uh, seems to exude a sense of of uh, peacefulness and uh, and order and integrity, and it's called Burnt Norton because it burned down, but also because it was burned down by its owner. and uh this is of course not mentioned in the in anything but what we have here is something like the garden of eden the original garden uh the paradise lost which was burnt down by its owners representing a former state of order which is now gone you find this you find the uh a uh, the 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 pathos of having left that order behind uh, in Yeats's poems, over and over and over again, as well. So Eliot takes this to Burton Morton as a metaphor for the existence uh, that we have in the 20th century. We go back and realize the first thing we have to learn is that uh, things haven't always been as spiritually uh, barren and as as cacophonous and desperate as they are now. Now, this is not to romanticize a former time. Uh, the, the only value in going back and saying that to moderns is to break one of the spells that we moderns uh, are subjected to, which is that if it's later in time, it must be an improvement on what was earlier. Uh, so he simply takes us to Burnt Norton and walks us through the garden. There's, there are two epigraphs from Heraclitus. Uh, I will, I've translated them liberally. I guess the strict translation of the first one would be something like this. Although the law of reason is common, the majority of people uh, live according to, the wis- to a wisdom of their own, or something like that. Uh, I think we get something closer to what uh, Eliot has in mind if we translate it this way. The word is logos. And of course, for Eliot, uh, logos means the logos of the prologue of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. That's the whole mystery of the incarnation. The logos has been made flesh. So Eliot says. So the Eliot, I I would say the the appropriate Eliot-like translation of this Heraclitus thing would be: Although the logos is common to us all. Most people live as though their thoughts were their own. Um, most people live according to private wisdom, to a wisdom that they have managed to put together uh, by a combination of happenstance and uh, reading the newspapers and uh, catching a uh, aphorism or two. Uh, but that's not good enough, according to Elliot, because the Logos is common to us all. And the second uh, epigraph is the way upward and the way downward are one and the same. And that is not only an incarnational uh, idea, uh, but it is also... And, and a mystical one, the via positiva, uh, the mystical path of affirmation, and the via negativa, the mystical path of renunciation, uh, lead to the same thing. What one is trying to achieve... is is the ability to be in the presence of the actual so that, such that, it will reveal the real. And the via positiva and the via negativa are two paths traditionally taken uh, toward that end. Before we read the first few lines, uh, let me quote what are apparently the, uh, the, the, the background to them. It's from Augustine's Confessions, in which Augustine says this, It is plain and clear now that neither future nor past nor present exist, nor can we say properly that there are three times past, present, and future. But perhaps we might say there are three times, a present time of past things, a present time of present things, and a present time of future things. Indeed, there are three such in the soul, and I cannot see them anywhere else. The present time of the past things is memory present time of the present things is perception, and the present time of future things is expectation. If one's going to pursue the mystery of the Incarnation, the first problem is going to be the problem of time. So let me just quote these first lines. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Now, the two, th- this is very preliminary, almost hesitant at, as it begins, because it says time present, time past are both perhaps present in time future. And then if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Now the fifth line, all time is unredeemable, is the first surprise of the poem. Uh, because we, uh, c- we can appreciate the idea that uh, uh, all time is finally present in much the way that Augustine referred to it here. But if it's all, if it's eternally present, it is unredeemable. Redemption involves a process, and process involves a movement from past present to future. It involves a change, not just being, but becoming. So it can't be all present because if it's all present, if we live completely in the present, uh, we will be soulless. We may be attentive, but we will be soulless. Uh, Eliot is... Was capable of saying. In fact, he said that the spirit killeth and the letter giveth life. <laughs> now he found his contemporaries in such a state of confusion that he had to utter these these uh, these uh, upside down truths <laughs> because he found uh, he found something had been lost and that the people who had lost that were still able to mumble the aphorism. And so he, he began to reverse the aphorisms on us just to get us to wake up. So he said, "...the spirit killeth, and the letter giveth life." <laughs> well, anybody who's capable of that kind of uh, funny business is also capable of uh, disrupting another of the conventional... Wisdoms, And that is, it's widely recognized that there is a tendency to evade life by living in the past and the future. What I think Eliot saw was that there is an equal or surpassed tendency to exploit the present as an even more deceptive evasion. So there's nothing particularly, the present isn't exempt from our, from our tendency to hide from life. We can do it in the present as well as in the past and the future. And for people who have pretty much lost their sense of the mystery of the passage of time, it's more likely that we will have, that we will get stuck in the present than in the past or the future that we will live in a world that has neither an origin nor a goal. So, he begins to play around with this at the beginning of the poem, and then he goes on, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. So we're back in the present again. We can't avoid it and we can't, uh, we can't rely on it smugly to deliver us from our condition. Now the thing about when he refers to what ha- might have been and what has been, He's not referring to the past and the future. What might have been, I, I come into contact with what might have been by remembering. And I come into contact with what has been by remembering. So both of these have to do with going back. But in both of those, in what has been and what might have been, I can come in contact with an emotional fact of my life when i think of what might have been i get a little bit closer to a longing for something robert frost's poem the road not taken haunts us because it's it's what happens to us when we stop to think back what might have been and we and we momentarily are in the presence of the of the of the mystery and the pathos of time and the heartbreak of time. I want to read the next we, beginning. So we, we've, he, he gives us a few lines that are fairly abstract in order to frame philosophically what he's going to do, and then he starts to uh, to to really let the poetry flow. But before we turn to the po- poetic session, sections, I want to go back to this problem of emotion. The the Tepid emotionality. And, uh, visit two passages, one in The Wasteland and one in Portrait of a Lady, uh, where we'll just be reminded again of that, uh, of that condition. They both have to do, uh, if you'll allow an extension here, they both have to do with, uh, in a way, the garden. And we're about to re-enter the garden now. And so I want to bring to, to the fore, Elliot's concern with our inability to experience the garden as a garden. And the first one is from the Wasteland, the the section that deals with the Hyacinth garden. What is the garden? Well, the garden is the garden of Eden. The garden is the garden of childhood. And also the garden is the garden of romance. Most typically, I would say, these are the places where we experience the garden. Uh, and they're really just... They're overlapped on each other, but that's the place of, of pure potentiality and longing. So uh, one of them is the garden of romance. And, and, and Eliot sees that we don't know how to be in the garden anymore, so we don't have a sense of our origins. So here's the, uh, the Hyacinth garden. You gave me Hyacinth first a year ago. They called me the Hyacinth girl. Yet, when we came back late from the Hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak, and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing Looking into the heart of light, the silence. So a kind of emotional dissociation that cuts the hyacinth garden off from any meaningful relationship to life and the ongoing mystery of it, it becomes an episode, uh, but not something that, that tells me what, what life is or where to go with it. And from the portrait of a lady. And now this is not a, this is not a garden. The garden has become here, even though this is an earlier poem. The garden has become the park. Uh, I, for my purposes, it's a, that's the same kind of a place. You will see me any morning in the park reading the comics on the sporting page. Particularly, I remark, an English countess goes upon the stage. A Greek was murdered at a Polish dance. Another bank defaulter has confessed. I keep my countenance, I remain self-possessed, except when a street piano, mechanical and tired, reiterates some worn-out common song with the smell of hyacinth across the garden, recalling things that other people have desired. See that? being in the park and just going through the routine, staying on the surface of things, and suddenly there breaks in the, the music of the street piano and the smell of hyacinths and suddenly recalls what other people have desired. So a a, a servicing of desire or longing which is circumstantial and random and, and, and doesn't accumulate into anything and that is, when, it, even when it surfaces, mimetic. One, one, one becomes aware of what other people have desired. Well, that's the problem. We've lost uh, our emotional roots. And I think Eliot wants to take us back and help us discover them again. So he's inviting us into another garden. footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the Rose garden and in the Western world the rose and the rose garden represents this great mystical place uh, we have the we have uh, Dante's uh, uh, rose uh, the, the great rose at the end of the Paradiso. We have the rose windows in the cathedrals. In, uh, in the Middle Ages, we have this very uh, very influential French poem, The Romance of the Rose, which depicts the rose garden as the place of the culmination of the romance. Uh, so the, the rose garden is the, is the primordial place. Uh, and Don, uh, Elliot wants to take us back there but he already tells us that we're going back in our memory he's setting off echoes in our memory uh, but this is to a place that we uh to a passage we didn't take a door we didn't open into a rose garden and he says my words echo thus in your mind So what he's, he's announcing to us that he's going to tell a little story about a visitation to the rose garden, his own visitation to the garden, to the rose garden at Burnt Norton, but he's telling it in order to set off an echo in our minds of our own rose garden, which we haven't yet experienced. And so he wants to take us there. So my words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose? disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. That is to say, each of us has our own memory of being in the rose garden. And if we return to that memory, vulnerable to what it says about who we are, we would have heartache and longing and sadness And uh, we might wake up and be more attentive to the mystery of time passing. So he says, I'm not sure what will happen when I set this echo off in your mind, uh, but it's what needs to be set off. At least that's how I, I think he's expressing it. But to what purpose disturbing the dust on the bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. So each of us has this memory, but it is now a bowl of rose leaves. It's, it's tightly packaged and left to gather dust, and he wants to take us back there because we're emotionally tepid, and he wants to take us back to a place where the where the emotionality is in its molten form before it has cooled into its distinct objectives. And as Sebastian Moore said, other echoes inhabit the garden shall we follow quick said the bird find them find them round the corner he knows he knows who he's talking to he's talking to the to the modern western mind so he's very he's almost coquettish you see oh there are other echoes shall we follow quick said the bird Something we can... When suddenly he's touched uh, something in us. Yes, quick. Quick, said the bird. Find them, find them. Round the corner. In addition to its other uh, associations here, round the corner is an interesting phrase in terms of what comes here in a few lines. Because to, to round the corner is to begin to square the circle. Uh, although we don't know it, all we're trying to do is catch this other thing that he has, that he has very, uh, that he has very flirtatiously suggested might exist. And we hear the bird find them, find them. Through the first gate into our first world, shall we follow, the deception of the thrush into our first world. Now, I'm always happy to make original scholarly discoveries, and I'm not uh, and I'm not modest enough to keep the fact to myself. Uh, my uh, original scholarly discovery on this I, I, earlier in the week, I, I, I said. Uh, a possible uh, background to Eliot's uh, Deception of the Thrush is this Browning poem but this, this far into this I now say what Eliot was doing was referring to this Browning poem uh, I feel it very strongly <coughs> even though I have no warrant for asserting it uh, except the, what's right here in black and white uh, Browning wrote a poem called Home Thoughts from Abroad and uh, the last half of the poem goes like this. Now, wh- before we read it, you see, he's, Eliot says there is this thrush that has begun to sing. We hear the singing of the thrush. See? Uh, Quick, find them. And shall we follow the deception of the thrush? And we find out it's deceptive, so we have to be careful. But what is this thrush up to? Well, here's what Browning says in his poem. Hark where my blossomed pear tree and the hedge leans in the field and scatters on the clover blossoms and dewdrops at the bent spray's edge. That's the wise thrush. He sings each song twice over, lest you should think he never could recapture the first fine careless rapture. And though the fields look rough with hoary dew, all will be gay when noontide wakes anew, the buttercups, the little children's dower, far brighter than this gaudy melon flower. So the thrush is the one that sings each song twice over lest you should think he never could recapture the first fine careless rapture. That's the thrush we're following. The one who wants to recapture that first rapture. (coughs) Home thoughts from abroad. And then he says, um, though the fields look rough with hoary dew, all will be gay when noontide wakes anew. The buttercups... The little children's dower, far brighter than this gaudy melon flower. I think he's playing around with melancholy. The little children's dower, that is to say that, that, that emotional longing that is, that can be discovered when we go back to ca- capture that original rapture, is far brighter than this gaudy melon flower or melancholy. Well, to go back and capture the children's dower, I think that's what Eliot is trying to do here, because our it, remember it's it's a tepid emotionality, it's gaudy melon flower. That's our problem, or gaudy melancholy. We don't know how to remember. When we remember, we become melancholy. Not we don't we don't recapture the rapture. That's the children's dower, and the thrush is the one that's going to take us back there. Now, on the subject of uh, the gaudy melon flower, I want to uh, quote again this passage from Rene Girard's writing because we've been told that this thrush is deceptive so we have to be careful of this thrush we do want to make it back to the children's dower but uh, let's realize that there is a problem of coming up with simply the melon flower so with that as the background let me just read this passage from Girard desire now it is of course the the ardor the longing of that original rapture that, that the thrush is helping us recapture Uh, But then Girard warns, Desire is always using for its own ends the knowledge it has acquired of itself. It places the truth in the service of its own untruth. It always does its best to generate the double binds in which it gets caught, seeking always to entrap itself in the cul-de-sac which is its very raison d'etre. The idea of the demon who bears light is more far-reaching than any notion in psychoanalysis. Desire bears light, but puts that light in the service of its own darkness. The role played by desire in all the great creations of modern culture, in art and literature, is explained by this feature, which it shares with Lucifer. It, uh, it creates light brings light and heat into the situation but it turns the light and heat towards its own darkness and ennui so the gaudy melon flower of Browning's poem for me you see I would rather have the poem answer the poem than to have prose answer the poem uh, but these so I'm trying to get I'm trying to get Browning to do to do our to do our work of analysis here for us with his poem. Uh, but he says there is a difference between the children's dower, the little children's dower, and this gaudy melon flower that we have our noses stuck in. <laughs> the little melancholy thing, the kind of emotionality where we go back and we... Something is generated in the, in the way we remember things, but we remember things and so it, 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 in the context of such a spiritually barren situation, that what we come up with is melancholy. We don't touch that original rapture and bring it back into our existence. And it seems to me that's what Elliot is after. And next passage in the poem, there they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves in the autumn heat, through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery, and the unseen eye-beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at." There's, there is the feeling in the garden of, of presences that are invisible. One feels others there, but they cannot be seen. They are hidden in the shrubbery. Unseen eye beams crossed. You see, the, the eye beam is a, not used much anymore. Shakespeare uses it. Uh, the eye beam is the, is the connection when two people's eyes connect, you see. But these are the unseen eye beams crossing. And uh, unheard music hidden in the shrubbery. So they're dignified but invisible, a sense of the presence of others. And this, I think, is the sense of the, the, the inchoate sense of the communion of saints, the sense that there is another presence here. Uh, and, the, and, and the Christian notion of the communion of saints is that this community is always about us. And that only by atten- only by having reminders of that can we really be alive to the to the community that is our community. So one goes into this garden and feels, uh, uh, presences that can't that are invisible. Before I read the next lines, let me quote something that Martin Schofield said about this. He is a literary critic. He said. We can begin to analyze this moment into its constituent parts, but its perfection, or something as close to perfection as poetry has reached in our century, is in the end beyond explanation. Now that lets me off the hook a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But these next lines are, I think, truly amazing. So we're in the garden. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. There is here, by the way, uh, a sense of, of of an initiation taking place in which these gathered invisible members of the community of saints are participating with us and with the poet. And then there is also a sense of a liturgy. The guests are around, our guests now, accepted and accepting. So, we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley into the box circle. Now, the, the liturgy or the procession is in a formal pattern along the empty alley or the aisle into the box circle, a circle surrounded by the boxwood hedge. but more than that, of course. The box circle is the paradoxical place. It's the squaring of the circle. It's the mystery place. So in the earlier lines when it said round the corner, it was was hinting in this direction. And we walk majestically and formally down what looks like an empty alley but is in fact the aisle into what is the box circle. And it's, of course, in the box circle where the mystery can be experienced. Uber said, the religious communication of a content of being takes place in paradox. So we move finally, formally, majestically into the box circle. Eliot's contemporaries were standing over uh, not far away saying, uh, Tom, we've been there. Already. And uh, you're wasting your time. The, uh, the, uh, the pond has been drained. And, uh, so they, uh, they sat around chit-chatting while uh, Tom Elliott went over to check it out for himself. And they said, you're wasting your time, Tom. When you get there, you'll find out that the, that the pool has been drained. He said, well, I'm gonna go anyway. So we moved and they in a formal pattern along the empty alley into the box circle to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown edged. And the pool was filled with water out of sunlight and the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light and they were behind us reflected in the pool. It turns out the pool was drained and was dry. Dry concrete. Of course, that's the problem. Dry concrete. Now, concrete represents the actual impervious to the real. It is simply concrete. It has some advantages over the abstract, you know, uh, but it, it is not the incarnational. It isn't the actual that has that manifests the real. It is simply the concrete, the dry concrete. So the pool is dry, dry concrete, brown edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And so Tom Elliott comes back to his friends with their hands in their pockets talking about current affairs. And he says, guess what? The pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And they said, what? And the lotus rose. Now, this is a wonderful thing. You see, in the, in the Occidental world, the image is the, is the rose. And in the oriental world, the image is the lotus. And at this, this is the box circle. This is the place of paradox. This is the place where, where everything meets and is reconciled. And so now the rose becomes the verb. And the lotus, the noun. The lotus rose. Quietly. Quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light. You see, there again, again you have the actual, as an entree into the real. The surface suddenly reveals the mystery. And they, these presences that were invisible up to this moment, are suddenly visible, reflected in the pool. And now we see them behind us. This is a quiet initiation into the mystery of the Incarnation, which is that the actual, the concrete can, if it's attended to by a sacramental consciousness, become the manifestation of the real. And at the transfiguration scene, Peter said, How about if I build three tents right here and we'll just stay right here? (coughs) See? Because we want, if, if it ever happens, we want to stay right there. And the impulse to stay is the, is what, is what cuts it off. In the Transfiguration story, Peter says, how about if I build three tents right here and Moses and Elijah disappear? So? poem says and there they were behind us reflected in the pool then a cloud passed and the pool was empty go said the bird for the leaves were full of children hidden excitedly containing laughter go 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 said the bird Humankind cannot bear very much reality. And now, you see, we leave. what, In part, what Eliot wants us to, to, to experience is the origin and the goal at the same time, to put us in touch with the origin so we can long for the goal, but also experience that we are right now exiled in the journey from the origin to the goal. And comes along this same bird which led us into this place, which now says, Go. And at the very moment when we have decided to stay and we begin to feel the children hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end which is always present. So, this the whole section began and concludes with a reworking of Augustine's reflection on time and the mystery of time. And in the middle of it, we visit, in our echo to the poem, a primordial place and rediscover, one hopes, the little children's dower and the original rapture and longing.